welcome back to Investment Fund Secrets. So this is part two of Adam Campbell's interview. So Adam, if you've listened to the first one, I highly recommend it. He talks about family office and how he is a CFO of a family office. In this segment, he talks about how you can actually get into family office. It's kind of a fun part of the investment fund world that you can get in. He, he walks you through how to network your way into there. Adam also is a fantastic networker. We talk about his strategies of meeting people. Like He goes to networking events and doesn't sit in the corner and, and drink some water. He walks around, he's meeting people. He has, he told he told me in his interview, he has, he has three separate notebooks that he takes with him everywhere. And so when you listen, you can see what he does with those three separate notebooks. And then finally, Adam in this interview talks us through alpha and beta in the fun world, how to think about your risk versus reward. And he adds a, he adds a third piece into that, which I think is super interesting. I actually learned a lot from this interview. You're gonna love this and we're gonna hop over the audio right now. I've spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious fund managers around. And now I've decided to take the plunge and start my own fund. The real question is, how will I do it with no investors and without an Ivy League degree? This podcast is going to give you the answer. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we start and build multi-million dollar investment funds. I'm Bridger Pennington, and this is Investment Fund Secrets. All right, Adam. So tell us about the second generation. You've mentioned that there's a there's an opportunity there on when the wealth gets transferred from first generation to second generation. Mm-hmm. You that people like us, normal people, can get in yeah. on the family office space. So tell us about that and, and the opportunities you see there. Yeah, perfect. Um, so one of the the things that it's implicit into any family office is they they never build it for just a one shot and they're done for it. Some uh, some look at it and say they'll give everything to charity when mom and dad die, but most of them are trying to figure out how to build a legacy organization. So you've almost always got um, kids or nephews and nieces or cousins or different things like that that are trying to figure out how to move up the ranks and be able to handle this this family office, this wealth transfer. And there, you have to be sensitive because there are other siblings. There's people who just look at it and go, hey, I just, I just want mom and dad to liquidate the whole thing, drop me a couple million bucks, and I'll be off on my own for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look through books in, in family offices, that almost never never works. It never ends up being a benefit to that second generation. It's, uh, it's a detriment to them if they don't understand how to work with it and how to, to go through it. Um, a, a book that I totally recommend, uh, Raised Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, is a great, a great book about positive experiences of generational wealth transfer that lets you hear stories from the, the, kind of the, the main bosses, the G1, and from their, their heirs, G2, and how that how that transfer has worked successfully. You can hear a million stories of how it didn't work and the kids to become trust fund babies and just you know whittle away all the money for it. But this book actually um, kind of goes through some of those positive experiences, highly recommend it. Um, but something you'll find is that G2 oftentimes is looking for, looking for cohorts, looking for mentors, looking for associates, looking for people to help build their legacy. And, and a lot of times that's a great opportunity for people looking to get into family offices is look for those second generation people that are building, growing, developing, and they're, they're an awesome opportunity to help grow and expand what you can do for that family office and help that second generation because it's very seldom that the family office suddenly gets transferred to a complete third party, the, the G2's not involved whatsoever, and now it's just an independent business. It, it just doesn't go that way for it. The owners want the, the, the uh, G2 to understand exactly what's going on, 
So as an outside party coming into that, you've got great opportunity to figure out how do I help enhance their experience? How do I help optimize that or complement it or help them grow and develop in different opportunities for it? And if you can get into those kind of opportunities for it, you've got a great opportunity to grow and develop and uh, can give you some opportunities that you wouldn't be able to have otherwise by making a value add impact to that generation two structure and what's going on. So do you just become friends with the kids? Or I mean, do you, I mean you mentioned marketing, entrepreneurship, uh-huh. accounting, things like that, that you can val- really strong value add. Uh-huh. But what would you like practical advice to get into that, right? Practical you, advice. Like, would, you, would uh-huh. you just go meet, like try to meet the family or would you try to, because some of these high net worth families are really hard to get in contact with, Yeah. right? So what would be your recommendation for that? Yeah, they're, they're kind of the, the elusive family office exists in the world, but nobody knows where to find them, where to go for it. Yeah. Um, and something that's kind of a key in a family office is you're never going to see the jobs publicly posted as a family office. You're not going to run into, hey, we need a chief investment officer for a family office, unless it's a huge organization, very rare. Um, so the jobs come along because you know people and because they trust you and they have an opportunity. I mean, I, I had exposure and, and uh, opportunity to work with the gentleman I'm working for now uh, for almost seven years before anything ever came up for it. So I knew him, I understood what he was doing, but I only heard him as a name and a face for him. Um, so the opportunities come in really helping their companies, helping their causes, helping what they're trying to put as kind of social initiatives out there for it and being involved. So you're not going out and you know hitting up somebody on the street and being like, hey, is, is your mom rich? Like, can, yeah. Can I hang out with you because you, you come from a line of money? And that's not how it works. It, it doesn't go that direction. But looking at it going, I mean, listen to the podcast out there. Where do you find investors? Where do you find high net worth individuals? And socialize in those circles and you'll find that some of the, the, the second generation or third generation or even some of the primary generation, um, you've got things that you can correlate with them. They, they understand it. And the, the hard thing to realize is the people in the family office are just like every other person out there. They've got you know, emotional validation needs. They, they have mortgages that they're trying to work with. They've got concerns over school and family. And a lot of them just are normal people like everyday Joe Schmo. But if dad's worth millions and hundreds of millions of dollars, they don't get the same level of, of friendship. They don't get the same level of understanding when people know that that's where it is. So going in and you know, finding opportunity to build relationships with these people and treating them like normal people then you'll find that there's there's often opportunity to be able to to work with them to understand what's going on for them and they're they're just like everybody else in the world there's nothing different about them they just have a different opportunity to to grow and develop that other people might not have for it so be friendly be courteous be helpful on these um in the, the opportunities that you get and just get to know the people as people first because they'll be sincerely understanding in what you're trying to do with your business if you really have an interest in what they're trying to do with theirs, regardless of what they come from.
Love that. And Adam here won't tell us about himself, but I've seen Adam at a few different events. Um, you're incredible at your, your mouth is always moving, always talking, always meeting people, always friendly. He taught you talked multiple times in this interview about going to networking events, going to marketing events to meet people. And I've seen you at those events and you like meet people. Some people go and stand in the corner and drink water. Like you go and meet people and remember their names and get their bit. And you write it. I'm sure you have a list and write things down and yeah. remember to follow up with people. I mean, I mean, you don't know it when you meet him, but he is a perfect, you're like a professional networker. And that's why you're a CFO of a family office. <laughs> it makes yeah. sense. But um, anyways, I've seen you in action do an incredible job of that. So Thank you. you're, yeah, you're definitely, you're not just, you're not just talking, you're, you're working too. Yeah. And to your point, I, I, I love meeting people and I can't remember anything if I can't write it down. So I literally keep like three books with me at all times for it. There's always a, a business book that I've got and it's, it's just notebooks that I write stuff down. And there's another one that's educational and, and career advancement that I've got. And then another one that's kind of a, a spiritual binder for me for it. of Just looking at it saying, what do I need to, to remember that my kids would want to see? They don't care about my work pursuits. You know, they're, they're not so keen on my career pursuits, but is there stuff that's inspirational? And uh, it's interesting who fits in what binders on a regular basis. Sometimes you sit down with a mentor and you pull out the inspirational spiritual binder and really just start jotting things down left and right. Sometimes it's career advice. Sometimes you just need to write down as many names of the people that you're running into and where you met them, how you met them, and what, what was the key thing that you could take away to say, hey, I've got an interaction point with this, this gal or with this guy or with this company. And you just put it down to say, I need to follow up and ask this question to this person about that thing or show up at this event or remind myself to go here one of these days and check it out. So yeah, there's a lot of different ways to be able to network and find find ways to interact with people. Jeez, that's really cool. So last last few questions here. So what would be a lot of people on here are young fund managers get, getting started or want to get in the fund world. What would be your parting advice <laughs> to someone that's young like me or or someone just out of college? Maybe your your son or daughter that uh -huh. wants to get into the fund space and world. What would be your advice to them when just starting out? Yeah. So. Um, in getting into a fund, the biggest thing I'd recommend is understand what your core competency was. Um, there's, a, I mean, the hedgehog model out there is very strong, and I, I learned it in a different aspect of really what it is, is to be successful, you have to find something you enjoy doing, that you do well, and that other people will compensate you for, or recognize you for. And if it's not one of those, you know, all three of those, then it's probably not a, a core career competency. Mm -hmm. And you can find stuff that you enjoy doing and you do well, and nobody will pay you for, and that's an awesome hobby. And do it in your spare time, throw your money at it whenever you want to it, but don't make it your career. Find something that has all three of those elements for it and specialize. And once you get down your career path, maybe you know change things up, add some different value add to it. And I, I had to come from my first startup fund, I had to be that entire lifeline. I had to be the legal, the investment, the finance, and the entrepreneur associated to it. And the end result that I can say from it is I went back to accounting because it was what I knew I did well, Every people, you know, I got validated and I was compensated well, and that's what I needed to stick to. And I realized that it's not a solo effort, it's a team effort. Mm -hmm. Going out, doing anything else for it, my team is the most important thing for it. I'll, I'll pass up on investments and I'll pass up on opportunities just because it's not got the right people associated to it. Because I know I'm a phenomenal accountant and I can do a lot of other skills, but I would rather have those other people with it. So the advice I've got for people starting a fund is figure out which of those core life skills that you've got and then go plug in the other people. Mm -hmm. And they might be limited resources. You might only need legal for a little bit, or you might only need the investment advisor or investment, somebody helping you find those investments for a small time, but stick to what you're good at, bolt on those other people, the other team members that you work well with to get those other parts, and then have the guts to think big and just go out and do something audacious, 
do something that's calculated, you know, figure out what it is that keeps you up at night and don't squash it, don't throw it under the mattress, don't ignore it while you're doing your nine to five. Figure out how to spend your time on it and put your waking hours into it and your sleeping hours into it and figure out how to build that so that you can you can take the step and launch it because you will never be ready 100%. You will never feel like you've got all the support. You will never feel like you've got the education. Just look at it and take a leap of faith and surround yourself with people who say you can do it because you are the most phenomenal guy at XYZ or phenomenal gal at ABC skill set and your other support network will gather you together and you'll make it work. All right, Adam, so talk us through alpha and beta and in investment funds. You've mentioned that it's that's crucial for you, that you wish you would have understood way earlier in your career. Yeah. Walk us through how you think about alpha and beta and and how that applies to us when we're running funds. Yeah, perfect for it. Well, um, those those were, I mean, they're Greek letters, but they were, I had no idea what they really were for it. And uh, growing up, in the fund world and looking at it, alpha is really that that arbitrage. That's that value add that you have over just traditional markets for it. So you look at it and say, you know, what what does McDonald's have that's a value add over any other burger joint? What is their specialty? What is their niche? And can they capitalize on that? And that was something that I understood when people are like, oh, this is our unique selling proposition. And it's like, well, yeah, but you might do it the same as somebody else. But what is it as a fund manager or as an investment advisor or in, in your job that you add that's just a little bit of notch, like your special sauce that other people don't have, and then can you capitalize it? Can you capture that that alpha and be able to monetize it in some way for it? So that was something for me I, I never really looked at before because I was on the, the, the trench work side of the private equity fund. But when I really looked at it from the owner side, if I was gonna start a fund, my first question would be, what's my value add? What's my alpha? How am I gonna step up in front of anybody else and try to capture a unique selling proposition that's above what the market already has for it. And sometimes the, the oddest thing is your alpha doesn't have to be original, it doesn't have to be unique that nobody else has it, but you have to be able to die on that line. You have to look at it and say, this is my unique selling proposition and I'm going to stand on that hill, defend this hill with my life and die on that hill if needs be. Because my unique selling proposition, just having the confidence and, and the grit to stand up for that belief, you'll find that people rally around your hope, they rally around your stamina, that you're willing to wade through that, and that you really must have something that's going on. People really look at it and say, if he's willing to be that strong, that that's a need in the marketplace, I'm gonna test it, I'm gonna look at it, I'm gonna evaluate it on my own and see if this guy's crazy and just write him off, or if he's really got something that other people don't. So that, that unique arbitrage that they can make on the market, that unique selling proposition, that's the alpha that I looked at it and said, when I went to that investment fund or when I worked with those hard money lenders, they understood what their value proposition was. And alpha was the easiest way to look at it and go, oh, that's how the market considers it in the finance world. Hmm, I love that. So then beta. Yeah, beta is yeah. beta, your, your risk profile and looking at it. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, the... The easiest way I understood it is when I was in early stages of, of finance and accounting, they, they overlap a lot of those two together for it. And I keep kept hearing that there was traditional investment profiles. There was a risk and a return, and there was a trade-off for it. If you had a high risk profile, you probably had a high return. And if you had a low risk, you had a low return. And I found that that was crap. That was, it was a blatant misleading lie for people who don't need to be in the markets, don't, don't want to be active in something. What I, what I realized really quick was that it's actually a risk and a return and a control profile for those people who really want to jump into it. And the, the trigger was the fact that you look at entrepreneurs, they look at it and say, hey, I think I've got a really high risk and I can make a really high return, but they have a massive amount of control 
So that makes everything really okay. Mm-hmm. Versus looking at it going, hey, I want to buy Microsoft stock. And I'm going to compete with all these Wall Street giants because I think I know Microsoft better than they know Microsoft. And the answer is, no, you don't. They're going to crush you. They're going to destroy you. And it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. But if you have something you can control on that and manage the risk profile, then it makes all the difference in the world for it. So the, the beta is really looking at it going, what's the risk that's above what the market level is that you're willing to take on? And understanding beta would have helped me a lot more because I looked at it and say, ah, oh, it's a risk return trade-off. I'm just going to swap one for the other. Do I want a high risk, high return and maybe lose or a low risk, low return and really not get anywhere for it? Mm-hmm. But you throw that in there on the control and you look at it and say, suddenly I can manage that, that market risk. I can look at it and say, I can adjust and acclimate to beta and manage that risk profile to make unusual amounts of investment return with a low level of risk because I have a high level of control. Mm -hmm. So that was something I wish I would have known back in the college days is there's actually three profiles, not two. Don't let anybody tell you different Mm -hmm. unless they're just managing your 401k and you can't do anything with it (laughs) In which case, you probably shouldn't be starting up funds because you're letting the control pass off to somebody else to try to get a little bit more return. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it. Yeah, Ray Dalio in his book calls that asymmetrical risk. Yeah. That same, that same concept of, yeah, when that's funny that that's a, yeah, you mentioned it as a blatant lie to just keep people out of the markets because that's not true. In most scenarios, yeah. there is that control factor. I love how you put that into three buckets. Um, because that, yeah, that is so true with all businesses, especially when pitching investors. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's you got to understand your alpha and beta, and I love how you formatted that that way yeah. to tell investors, "Hey, this is my alpha. This is our this is our standalone niche. We're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna go to the mat on this one thing because this is how we add value to the world." And then beta, how we control that. I think that's yeah. that's incredible, especially when pitching investors and then just formulating your fund. In, on a whiteboard, right? To understand those two things is huge. Mm-hmm. And something you'll find that's a really value add is people who want to take control of your money will convince you that there's only a risk of return. People who want to add value will emphasize their control on it. As a fund manager, you can tell them all day long what the risk and the return profile is, but they know you've got an idea of what the reward is. You might know what the risks are, but they're going to look at it and say, how well do you control your business? As a fund manager, do you have control over the variables? If crap hits the fan, what are you going to do? If this gets really big, what are you going to do? How much money are you going to take before you're growing too fast? How much money can you actually deploy and make it manageable for it? Like, how do you control the investment? In my mind, is almost a better profile on what you're doing with your fund than what your risk and your return is that the LP... You know, the, the documents outline in spades, how are you going to prove out your returns, how are you going to prove out who your management team is, how the risk, but that's the part that when push comes to shove, how do you control what that outcome is, is almost more important than anything else. Hey, what's going on? I know a lot of you out there are starting funds or thinking about starting funds and something I was so grateful for was having mentors. When I started my first fund, I had people to turn to and to ask questions. And so what I've decided to do is make the same thing for you. So what we've done is compiled a lot of interviews, things that I've learned, my personal pitch decks that I've used to pitch investors and put it all into what I call a mini vault. So in there, I deep dive into Forex funds, into real estate funds, how to structure them, how to structure deals, how to find investors. And I try to go deep to help mentor you to help you start your first fund. And in addition to that, we have a private members group on Facebook that fund managers are getting together on there and talking and working through problems together. So if this is interesting to you, if you want to get involved and get some help right off the ground, go to investmentfundsecrets.com for less than a hundred bucks. You can get started and get into the mini vault. And I would love to see you in there on the Facebook group and talk with us. Thanks. See ya.